0: Welcome to 5th Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Fly on the Wall, I catch up with Joe Prouse and Wayne Ting, Joe and Wayne are the president and CEO, respectively, of micromobility company Lime. We discuss the concept of micromobility and its explosion across cities around the world. Joe and Wayne also discuss the demographics of Lime's users, how current real estate trends, such as the migration from cities to suburbs, are affecting the business as well. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Wayne and Joe, thank you so much for joining. Where are you guys coming in from today? Uh, I'm in, in
1: uh, Northern California under the layer of smoke. Oh, nice. Uh,
2: and I'm in Santa Fe. I, I, I fortunately was able to escape uh, California for the week, so Go good, to have, good to have you be yeah, out here. Yeah. Well, hopefully, Joe, you're, you're staying indoors.
0: Um, yes. Can you guys give just a little bit of background on your roles,
2: obviously, at Line, and just what is Line? Sure. Um, so, um, my I'm Wayne. I am the CEO of Lime, um, and Lime is the um, world's largest micromobility provider. Uh, if you think about scooters and e-bikes, um, we're on five continents, um, hundred cities, thirty some countries um, around the world. We've only been around for about three years, um, but we've done over 150 million trips um, in that time frame. And and to put that in context, um, you know, Uber um, took double the amount of time to get to 100 million trips. Um, And it's really been a um, a phenomenon to see, you know, people, we put out this scooter, this new form factor, and the number of cities and riders embrace it all around the world.
1: Um, I'm Joe Krauss. I'm the uh, president of Lime. Um, And I came to Lime about uh, two years ago. And, um, you know, I oversee product engineering, hardware, logistics, supply chain. Um, And so um, I'm the half of the business that's it's not about actually operating the service. Um, it's providing the tools um, for customers to use it our operators to actually serve it and the hardware to actually deliver the rides to customers.
0: Nice. And I, I, I like the way you described it, Wayne, as a, a phenomenon because it, like our original office was on Abbot Kinney in Venice, actually where, where Joe and I met last, I think. And I, to some extent, it was like ground zero of, of micromobility's explosion. And I remember, so we were obviously had just started our, our real estate tech fund. And I just never seen consumers engage with something new in the way they were with scooters. It was just phenomenal. It was a, it was just, it was like a, it was like meme like it was hard to believe that it was real. And I remember when we made our investment in, in Lyme, our, our real estate strategic LPs were like, wait, this is not real estate tech. Um, and when I was seeing how people were moving about the city on these new devices, on what is now kind of broadly the whole micromobility category. I was like, this is, tra- this is transformative to cities, right? And when it's happening in Venice, you know that it's going to happen in many cities across the U.S. and the world. And so I'm curious how, how just you conceptualize what is micromobility as a concept? If you were to describe that as a, a phrase to a real estate owner, what is micromobility? Can I take that one way or do you want to take it's- it? No, you go
1: ahead. Um, Let me frame it in terms of the mission that we have. We want to serve all trips below five miles within a city. And if you look at the mega trends that are happening in cities, one is you have real problems as it relates to congestion, um, traffic, local pollution. Uh, Truthfully, for real estate owners, the use of space. You know, we dedicate a huge amount of space in our cities to parking these metal, you know, 4,000-pound metal vehicles, that sit most of the time. And micromobility is really about providing an alternative to cars for short distance movements and that these vehicles are primarily two attributes. They're small, they're personal, I'll add a third, I said two, and then they're electric. And so our view of the world is that there is this fragmentation of the car trip happening today. You're gonna use small vehicles for short trips and bigger vehicles for longer trips. And what that means is, Lime offers a platform today where we've got a vehicle in a scooter that's great for a mile and a half and below. And then we've got e-bikes that I think are really good for this, call it one and a half to three miles. And then we're looking at other form factors um, for three to five miles. But our goal is to serve all trips under five miles and to remove from cities some of this pressure around congestion and local pollution to make cities much more livable and much more
0: competitive as places to be it's interesting when, when you were describing parking lots and, and you know how cars sit idle so much of the day, we were just talking about how when you when you fly into Los Angeles, it feels sometimes like you look out and you 're like, "Oh, this is a city which is basically a lot of parking lots with some buildings and highways scattered in between um, and you think about how much the car you know since the, the Robert Moses era has conditioned. How and why cities uh, are laid out the way they do, and why real estate values are what they are in different places, and why bedroom communities and commercial districts all relate to one another, and so to some extent, it feels like micromobility injects a fluidity to transportation that um, almost i wouldn 't say undermines it almost reshuffles the deck of of the, the urban fabric, and if that 's the case, that has pretty profound effects on on real estate. And I'm curious, just as, as you've thought about that and as you've seen that, have you noticed any interesting trends around like, what do you see about how consumers are behaving differently and how, where they're coming, where they're going, using scooters that you feel like are a fundamental change versus the existing paradigm of getting in your car, driving somewhere and parking it, especially in LA in like a valet garage. How do you see that changing
2: just city landscapes? Well, I'll see, I, I think um, pre-COVID, um, one of the things we, one of our most popular uh, beginning and end trips is at a public transit um, spot. People use us as a first mile, last mile transport because, you know, if, if we're honest, you know, I think public transit is okay in some of our cities. But the hardest part is how do I get from the, the stop back to my home? And and I think by but what they're showing is that it because we allow a cheap, affordable, fast way for that first mile, last mile, it actually allows more people to give up that car. Um, mm-hmm. and I think Joe Joe was mentioning that the fact that um, if you you know I think if you if you look at the um, the the costs um, other than homes, the the second biggest cost for the average American family is actually transportation you look at the environmental impact. I think, you know, we're we're talking about the California forest fires. This is something that is becoming real for people. Um, The impact of climate change is real. And if you talk to urban planners and city officials, the thing that is top of mind um, for many urban officials, and probably even more so in Europe, is around how do we play a part as cities, as as owners of a community to bring down uh, greenhouse gas. The average trip on a scooter for the exact same mile is less than a 10th of what to take on a car. Um, and in, and I think because these this this change where now you can actually use public transit, even if you don't have great, perfect public transit as a, by using scooters for that first mile, last mile. And because it's affordable and because it's green, you see a lot of mode shift. People moving, giving up that car, moving more of their trips onto micro-mobility and especially true amongst young people. Um, and, and, and this is why I think if you go to places where you are know, talking about Venice and Santa Monica, you go to places with a lot of young people, you see really, really high usage of micro mobility. And I think those young people are gonna get older and they're gonna demand something different uh, with how they move around. Yeah,
1: I'm a big fan of that phrase, demographics are destiny. Um, and the stats bared out. If you look, 16 to 34 year olds drive 22% less than that same cohort did in 2001. The the era since Henry Ford introduced the Model T in 1906, the model was individual car ownership. And if we look at those two words, car ownership, both of these are changing. Uber introduced the first revolution which was access instead of ownership. But car is the next thing to be disrupted because the reality is In an individual car ownership world, you use a car for everything, short and long trips, day and night trips, trips to the market, trips to the mountains. But you're seeing this fragmentation, especially in an urban environment where people are now asking the question, is the car the best way to really get around this congested city? And the second thing I would say is, if you look at what infrastructure are cities putting in, are they putting in more roads or are they putting in more bike lanes? And I think the tailwind trend is, They're putting in more bike lanes for more alternatives because they know that two things. Citizens want more people-connected cities, more humane cities, more free-flowing cities, more human-scale cities. And the second thing that they know is that people want these alternatives to cars. They're seeing people vote with their feet. As a personal example, again, pre-COVID, commuting to the office, I would take the train from where I live up into the city. And when I got off at the terminus, if I took an Uber, it was 18 minutes. On a scooter, it was six. And that time savings times both directions times five days a week, is literally five or six days of my life that I get back every year. And I'm not alone in that feeling of I'm recapturing both something in the feel of this city being in an open air, individual, you know, like being on a much smaller vehicle in terms of how that feels, but mainly I'm saving days of my life. And there's very few products that give people back days of their life. And I think that's a small part of what is making this um, whole micromobility trend a real phenomenon.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you said that that comment about um, people are taking them that one of the endpoints or one of the most common endpoints or starting points is public transportation, because I imagine that enfranchises a much larger audience for public transportation at this point of reducing the, the carbon footprint. And to what you were saying, Joe, the, that, that you know, the first test was, was Uber, right, and, and, and Lyft, right, that the ride-sharing was like this canary in the coal mine in the decline of car ownership. Um, and you think about the impact that has on, on a city and – Parking requirements and freeways and you know the surface traffic—it's just—it's profound to think about if we reimagined all of that and public transportation became much more core, became like the central arteries of movement, and then you have these different modalities, these different form factors to govern the the last you know one to ten miles—that radically changes the the landscape, the 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 streetscapes of cities. What is, um, when, you th- when you say different form factors, today there's obviously the scooter and, and you have uh, e-bikes. Do you think there's an, a kind of uh, further state of that where there's something smaller than a car but larger than an e-bike that kind of captures some middle distance trip that, that you see on the horizon?
2: Yeah, we, 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 definitely, we definitely do. I think Joe was mentioning there's, um, you know, there, there are different modes. There are different modes that are right for different distances. There's also different use cases. Um, so I love this scooter. Uh, but if I want to go grocery shopping, it's kind of hard to take four four bags of groceries on the scooter. Um, and, you know, our e-bikes have a basket. Um, and that basket could potentially hold cargo. Um, but and, and we see that in the usage case. The average um, e-bike trip is um, – two or three miles longer than the average scooter trip, but you still don't see the, the average trip being, you know, 10 miles long. And we think there's probably going to be a third form factor that is um, maybe something smaller than a moped um, that, that kind of sits in that third mode that can carry a cargo, go a little bit faster, go a little bit longer. And I think division, division for Lyme is that we want to build out those modes so that when you are trying to go under five miles within a city, um, if for different distances, for different use cases, you know if you open the Lime app, we're going to have a mode of transportation that meets your needs at the right price point, um, that is near you, walkable. Um, and so we're exploring this third mode and we're exploring the fourth mode. But our goal is to meet all those needs um, in, in the medium term.
0: One of the things I've thought a lot about with respect to, to real estate and micro mobility is how powerful the derivative data that you have about how people are moving about cities and what the, the character and the characteristics of their trips are. Um, have you given any thought to like how real estate owners, frankly, could leverage that data? Because that's really valuable, knowing where people are coming and going to is real estate, right? <laughs> that is the definition of picking real estate. Have you ever thought about that in terms of what you could do with that information?
1: I don't know, we haven't thought about it formally, at least I haven't, maybe Wayne has done a treatise on it and it's a spare time. Um, But but, um, we do a lot of data sharing with cities, obviously, because cities are super interested in where to put infrastructure. And I think cities take a view, which is they wanna pave the cow paths. They wanna look at the paths that people are taking um, and they would like to put bike lanes to make those routes safer and more efficient. you know, as I mentioned, there's this symbiotic relationship. If cities want more people on bikes and scooters because that makes cities more livable, reduces park congestion, reduces parking requirements, um, they got to put in more infrastructure to do that. Um, and I think we've used, again, that data with cities to help feed, have a feedback cycle on where to put that infrastructure. I think the second interesting thing with regard to data is just in, in this current climate is to look at the differences in the way people move about cities before and after COVID and the type of things that they're doing in cities. You, one of the things you see globally is the depression of the commute use case. Um, so you know, if you looked prior to COVID, you would see a peak usage of the fleet in the morning, like 8 a.m. Um, where people are going to work. There'd be a lull in the afternoon, see a repeat in the afternoon. Uh, sorry, another surge in the afternoon for people coming home. There's midday activity, people going to a restaurant, going out to a gym, kind of moving through the city, going to a meeting in a different building. Um, But it was really this bimodal distribution during the day. In COVID, what we see instead is the dominance of what I would call the local leisure or joyride use case and the emergence of another use case, which is errands. So how do you see this in the data? One thing you see is the surge of utility, the surge of usage is much later in the day. It's basically, you know, people might be working from their apartment and then what they're looking to do is just get out and explore their city and get out in the open air and cruise. Um, So you see a surge in afternoon activity without this morning spike. Um, The second thing you see is if you actually look at the before the start and end trip, um, we actually look at the ratio between what we call the displacement. How close are the start and end points of a trip from the distance of the trip itself? So put another way, you could have a trip that's a mile, but that starts and ends at the same place and its displacement is zero and its distance is one mile. When you start and end in the same place, what you're often seeing there is actually an errand. Somebody starting at their home and coming back to their home. And maybe you see the scooter pause in a particular location. So I think we haven't used this data, or I don't think given enough thought to how might we help real estate owners use this data. I am certain there's stuff that's interesting in there. Um, But we have seen some big differences
0: in the way people move around cities pre and post COVID. Yeah, and I imagine I would love to be able to step out of my house and joyride around the block for a little bit right now. But one of the things that, you know, we always thought was really exciting about what you could do with Lyme and with micro mobility is tenants are demanding this, right? So if you have a multifamily building and, you know, people that are commuting to work, oftentimes they live within a distance where they could commute via scooter. Or as Wayne, as you said, they could now get to public transportation and commute in that form. have you Have you explored ways where you could potentially partner with these endpoints, these like consumer endpoints, whether it's an office building or a multifamily building or a shopping retail asset, and actually kind of almost structure docking stations where this could be offered as an amenity to to tenants but also also you could kind of drive inducement, I imagine, in the retail category in particular to say. I'm sure mall companies or large retailers would love to attract people to their center, even for a free ride, for the cost of a free ride. Have you looked at anything like that in terms of structuring partnerships?
2: We've only done kind of, I would say, small-scale pilots. Um, So in France, we partnered with a um, kind of a local convenience store, and we have charging stations in the convenience store. Um, And we said, okay, go to this convenience store uh plug it in, charge it, and we'll give you a, a bit of a discount. And I think with the with the convenience store, we actually have a um, um, a, a payments because one of the things we we do is we got to charge the scooters somehow. And what we do is we have traditionally what we call juicers; these are independent contractors who take the scooters home and they charge it. And I think our question was, well, if we're going to have to pay for charging anyway, you know, is there a win win where we can split some of that cost? And then from the perspective of the convenience store, what they get is more foot traffic. Because the the rider knows if I go one extra block and park it um, at the convenience store, um, I'll get a little bit of a discount. Um, But when I'm there, maybe I buy something. And so we've done small scale pilots, and I and I think um, it's something that definitely um, you know I think we see a lot of um, opportunities um, um, to to look more into. But I'll I'll say one additional thing uh, because I think you know when I think about real estate and longer trends, especially this year, you know I I think we see a lot of you know, we certainly see a lot of people starting to think and talk about moving out of cities. And I think one of the way, reasons why, especially in the post-COVID world, people are thinking about moving out of cities, I think, you know, is it, one is that they don't know how to move around um, in a safe way. Um, and one of the things that really distinguishes micromobility um, is that we're open air. Uh, we're a single passenger. The most common way COVID is transmitted is human to human. And, and we know indoor, outdoor, early studies are showing, you know, 5, 10x delta. I think a lot of the reason why you look at dining spaces that they're not really opening indoors. It's just a huge difference. It really lingers. Um, you know, when we think about the, the, the impact of having a, um, an, a, a safe mode of transportation is that hopefully more people stay in the city. Um, and I think, you know, Joe was mentioning, we see a lot of people using the scooters now end to end. Um, maybe they don't feel quite safe with public transit, so they're using it from their home all the way to a store. In fact, one of the big use case increases is actually visiting um, local, small, medium-sized businesses because they, they don't have other ways to get there, especially if you don't own a car. Um, you know, and so how do, we, how do we leverage that knowledge and as people are leaving their homes, give them more information since we already know they're visiting um, um, businesses around them, um, and I think we're partnering with uh, Chambers of Commerce Um, over the last couple of months to help promote uh, local businesses. I think all those things were at the beginning of it, but I think there's a lot of opportunities. uh,
1: I'll add a couple of things, of things that I would love to explore. We know that, especially as, um, you know, we look forward to a world in which people are doing more commuting. Um, They're actually doing more commuting in Europe, less so in the United States. And, um, but the, The thing that I think about is if you ask users who are commuting on a scooter, what their number one concern is, the answer is always the reliability of ensuring that a scooter is available for me when I need to get to work. They're less anxious about getting home. There's a lot more flexibility about like, well, I'm 10 minutes late getting home, but they're worried about the morning commute.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And And so real estate partnerships, which would enable us to deploy, to and serve reliably tenants in these large multifamily residences to ensure that like vehicles will always be there for them um, is something that I think would be very interesting for the business because it's very symbiotic. The more you can make transportation is all about reliability. If you can't count on it, you're not going to use it in any as anything other than like an occasional joyride. Um, we know people want to commute on these vehicles, and we know the number one concern people have is reliability. And so, distribution partnerships. And I would say this is especially true in markets um, in the United States, which involve a requirement where a vehicle is locked to something. Um, so, like in San Francisco, there is a lock to requirement in which the vehicle literally has a cable, and you have to, when we deploy, lock it to something. And the city dictates. Or you can only lock it to a certain number of things in the morning. Working with um, real estate owners to enable private land distribution and lock to would be a
0: great opportunity for um, serving customers better. Yeah. And I imagine also charging as well, right? You have, you know, real estate owners that have invested an enormous amount in their electrical capacity and they're always looking for additional ways to generate incremental revenue. (laughs) So to some extent, I think some of the the large multifamily assets in urban locations would be just really attractive opportunities for for partnership. Um, And I totally understand what you were saying about the the certainty of having access to kind of almost transportation on demand, transportation as a service. Um, Because I remember when when uh, I first, I think Paris is one of your biggest cities. And when I went to Paris, when you had first started, I was so accustomed to using Lime in, in Venice, California, that it was, it was harder to, to get to them. So I was still kind of relying on, on Ubers. And then when I went back, I mean, they were truly ubiquitous. And it is such an easier way to get around a, a city like Paris. And so that, that actually is kind of my next question, which is what are the cities where you think micromobility has the biggest potential? Beyond just the U.S., but the U.S. and the world, like what are the characteristics and features where you see the most potential for micro mobility?
2: I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I, I, you know, we're actually a lot of times people are surprised by this, but we're actually today um, two thirds outside the United States. The vast, you know, the majority of our business um, um, are in global cities, and and we think there's a couple reasons why cities outside the United States sometimes is more attractive. Um, one is that, you know, I think a lot of the European cities in particular built before the days of the cars. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, they're made able to walk around, they're, they're, they're often as more uh, smaller. They also, as a result, has had a history of building micromobility and promoting bike lanes and promoting uh, the use of, you know, other forms of uh, lightweight vehicles. And so you look at our, our biggest city globally, they're the Parises, they're the Berlins, um, you know, and we just launched in Rome and it's already a top uh, five city uh, globally. Um, and, and we think a lot of these European cities, because of their density, because of the culture, um, and also I think because of the, the, I think there's a probably a different level of awareness and, you um, um, consideration around our impact on climate change. Um, I think it's made it more successful. That said, we actually see, uh, scooters working all around the world. Um, and, you know, I think we're one of the places that we've done enormously well, um, is around university towns, uh, places that are smaller, that you wouldn't think it, was, it looks very different than, than the kind of these high big dense cities. We do quite well in uh, places that are near oceans or rivers or lakes because it creates that uh, beautiful scenery, a lot more joyriding, um, um, you know uh, uh, use cases, and we actually do really well in in Utah. Brenda, I know you're in Utah, and we see different use cases in places like Utah. We actually see a lot of dates because there's isn't um, the same bar scene, and you actually see two rides. They start in the same place, they spend five hours together, and it's clearly like a date ride and, and a great way to spend an afternoon. Um, and so, our best cities are European, dense, big, older cities. But we see this working in, in all around the world, big and small, and and many uh, different use cases are popping up and different. Communities.
0: It's really interesting, and now I have a new date idea here in here in Utah. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is you've talked a lot about you know the the reduced carbon footprint, obviously, of using a scooter to get around, and it's it's so intuitive, right? That is the most intuitive thing, right? You can go from driving your you know big SUV to driving a Tesla electric power to driving something that's a fraction the size of a Tesla to get to the same place um how impactful is it is my is my first question can you kind of frame like what is the 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 impact of you know say twice three times the adoption of micro mobility today in the united states and then how much do cities care about this and how much does that vary between europe and the us because you said it, it seems to be more topical for european riders than it is for american riders um, so, I'll definitely start with
1: European cities, European regulators um, care deeply about their climate objectives. Um, it's not saying that US cities don't care, but the level of intensity, the level of commitment behind it is far higher. And the level of requirements that they put upon us as an operator to, um, in terms of full life cycle analysis, document and demonstrate um, the carbon savings is extremely important to them. As a company, we look at it end to end. We we have done the full life cycle analysis. And if you actually look, there is the the carbon footprint is a, it's obvious. Uh, you know, when you use a gas powered vehicle which weighs four thousand pounds to move a hundred and fifty pound person, versus using a forty pound vehicle to move a hundred and fifty pound person using a battery, um, the the carbon impact of the trip itself is enormous. But that's a portion, an important portion, of the carbon impact. There are other portions that we continuously work on. One is just, if you look at the manufacturing, the process, and what really also the end of life, you think of the beginning of life and the end of life is another important part. So we think about um, how do we reuse as many parts that come off these scooters in order to repair the scooters that are, are breaking so that we're reusing parts consistently. Another piece to think about is if you think about the people that pull scooters off the street, charge them at home and redeploy them. How do we make that? People are burning fossil fuels in that loop. And so in our European cities, um, we're moving increasingly towards electric vans, uh, cargo bikes um, that can carry a number of vehicles, but they're electrified. And so overall, the carbon impact is, um, the carbon reduction is significant. What we're trying to get it down below is riding on a hybrid electric bus, um, which is an extremely low amount if you're a passenger on a full electric, uh, hybrid electric bus. Um, but, uh, for regulators, again, it's more than just the ride. It's the entire chain from manufacturing through
0: operations through end of life. Yeah. And I imagine that's on the top of everyone's mind right now, given what, you know, is happening in California and, and just adding more congestion just seems like, um, a travesty right now. So um, Wayne and, and Joe, this has been awesome. I, uh, I always love talking to you guys about micro mobility. And it's so interesting to think of the broad implications on cities and on real estate. And I hope that we can find some creative ways to um, get Lyme in front of real estate owners in the, in the future. Thanks for having us, Brendan.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.